This is Haunted America Radio. With your host, Al Shepard. And now, Haunted America Radio. It was back in 2009 when I first interviewed Paul Rademacher when he was the executive director of the Monroe Institute. Now, I highly suggest you listen to episode 11 before listening to this one. But if you can't, we do a limited recap for you. Now, this interview here was done in late 2023. So we're going to catch up on the last 14 years. But first, let me tell you a little about him. Paul Rademacher's life changed in 1981 when during a construction accident, he encountered a profound mystical state. To better understand that experience, he entered Princeton Theological Seminary and graduated with a Master of Divinity degree. During 15 years of service as a Presbyterian pastor, he studied extensively in the fields of consciousness and spirituality. In 1997, Paul attended a program at the Monroe Institute and realized that Monroe's methodology was a more direct route to the numinous. He became a residential facilitator for TMI in 2001 and later served as TMI's executive director from 2007 to 2011, during which time I conducted the first interview. Since then, Paul has been investigating the mysteries of the heart and its capacity to integrate daily life with the spiritual journey. His online course, Secrets of Time, Money, Dreaming, and Enlightenment, and an upcoming book by the same title, are the result of that very personal and transformative journey. Now, Paul is also a building contractor, a designer, a carpenter, a public speaker, a spiritual director, an artist, a husband, father, and grandfather. And his first book, A Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe, Travel Tips for the Spiritually Perplexed, was published in 2009. I hope you enjoy this interview with Paul Rademacher. Um, so we had you on back in 2009, 2010. I think it's episode 11 for anyone who's uh, watching and wants to go back and look at the past archives. But for those who don't want to do that, why don't you just sum up uh, who Paul is and uh, maybe why you were on in the first place. We had you on when you were executive director at the Monroe Institute, mm -hmm. and you told some great stories about your journey up to that point. So why don't you just give us a quick recap of, of what happened to you there, and, uh, and then we'll pick up from there and see what you've been up to for the last 13 years. Alan, thanks for having me on the show. It's a pleasure to see you after all these years again. Um, as far as my background, I, I started into this whole uh, journey into spirituality and human consciousness in my early 20s. I had a couple of experiences that I can only describe as mystical experiences. They weren't things I was tr actively trying to pursue. They just kind of happened to me. One of them was I was hitchhiking across the country and um, ended up in Big Sur, California, in the redwoods there. And 
uh, it was probably one of the most vulnerable times of my life, and, and I, suddenly the Redwoods just came alive. The whole uh, experience w was imbued with this essence of spirituality, and there was a sense, even though I was extremely vulnerable, that this was the safest I'd ever been in my life. And so the, the paradox was really profound to me, and it turned out to be uh, very uh, prescient because shortly after that experience, I was picked up by a, a young woman in a car, and we were heading north on Highway 1, and um, that part of the country, that Highway 1 just kind of like hangs off the side of the mountains, and off to the left is the Pacific, and a sheer drop off and off to the right is the mountains just going skyward. We were coming around this bend, and suddenly the uh, sun was setting, and it blinded her, and right at that point, there was a huge boulder that she hit in the middle of the road, and the car flipped. Flipped three times, I think it was, and I thought, well, surely this is the end. <laughs> We're going to go over the edge. There's no, no way around it. Um, but we ended up on the, on, with the car upside down. We got out. We were both fine. And then right across the street, there was a guy in a motorhome who took us in. And then um, that guy in the motorhome took me from Big Sur, California, down to uh, Yellowstone National Park, all the way across the country to Minnesota. And then I had one other ride to get back to Pennsylvania. So it, it truly was, even in the, in the midst of that really um, life-threatening situation, I did have that safety that was was really profound for me. So that was the first experience. And the second one was um, my brother and I had a construction company. And uh, we were working up on the roof of a house we were building, and I pulled on a board and suddenly went careening off the roof and landed on a pile of gravel, and it turned out that I fractured my left hip. Long story short, they took me to the hospital, and first they didn't find the fracture, and so they put me into physical therapy, which was pretty excruciating. Did some more x-rays, found the fracture, and put me into traction. And when the doctor told me I was going to be off for six weeks, I went into this spiral downward of um, pain and anxiety, pain because the, the hip was excruciating, and anxiety because this was the busiest time of our year and there was absolutely no way I could be off work. But then all of a sudden I broke through into this other reality. That's all I can say. Um, and in this other reality, the pain completely dissipated. I was surrounded by the sense that there are no accidents whatsoever. Everything had purpose and meaning um, and was just exactly the way it should be. And then at one point, I found myself standing in front of this being of light. And um, I can't remember the conversation specifically, but my general recollection is that we were kind of looking at my life to come, you know, what was, what was going to unfold and what I should expect from that. And um, so those two experiences really began to shape my view of the world, number one, because it showed me that even in this physical world, there is this spiritual undertone in the first experience in Big Sur. And secondly, um, that there are other dimensions that are available to us, even though we have essentially outlawed them in our society, in our, in our uh, view of human consciousness. At that time, uh, the only language I had for that kind of thing was uh, religious language, because I'd been brought up in the Judeo-Christian tradition. I just didn't have any other words for it. And so after the second experience, I, I had the sense of calling into the ministry. I went, into, um, I went to Princeton, Princeton Theological Seminary and became a Presbyterian pastor for about 15 years.
but through all that time, there was this nagging at me that that the the religious aspect just wasn't getting to the essence of what I experienced in those uh, in those mystical encounters. So a few years into the ministry, my wife and I took a, a vacation, and um, we walked into a bookstore, and all of a sudden there was one book that just literally jumped off the shelf. And it was Robert Monroe's second book called um, Far Journeys. Now, Robert Monroe, I, I'd never heard of him before. And suddenly, I'm, as I'm reading this book, he's talking about things that t- begin to actually touch into the mystical experiences that I had had. And I was just blown away. He became famous for uh, coining the phrase out-of-body experience. He developed uh, the Monroe Institute where... People are helped to, or he developed a sound technology that helps people to start to explore some of these outer ranges of human perception. And boy, when I read that book, I thought, oh my gosh, wouldn't it be amazing to go to a place like that? And and the second thought right after that was, wouldn't it be wild to work at a place like that? Now, mind you, I'm a Presbyterian pastor, and I'm, I'm supposed to keep up these uh, at least the outward signs of normalcy. But I wasn't normal on the inside at all because of these experiences. Well, lo and behold, it took me about 11 years, but I did go to the Monroe Institute, and that world that I had fallen into came back in spades and opened up a, just a completely different view of the world and my place within it. And... Uh, it just, fan, it just fanned the flames all that much more to want to find a way to pursue this. Well, um, eventually I became uh, an outreach facilitator for the Monroe Institute, and then, uh, to my great surprise, in 2007 I became the executive director of the Monroe Institute. And, uh, and that was kind of a double-edged sword in, in some ways, because um, when I was there as a participant, you know, I could I could just kick back and enjoy the programs and not worry about anything, but it was much more difficult to do that when I was in the administrative position. And so even though I might take a course there from time to time as the executive director, I could never, just could never uh, let go of that feeling of responsibility for everybody's welfare and the, the administrative aspects of things. And so the Monroe techniques actually stopped working for me, and that was quite a loss for me. So uh, that set me on a on a sort of a different uh, road, and and that uh, th- that different road is really kind of what the next thirteen years have been about. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's why I wanted to, I wanted to kind of pick up and see what uh, where you went from there, because it's kind of like. Uh, this is the next episode of this series on on Paul. So it's like, <laughs> gee, what you know? So you just did the you just did the past episode recap. So mm-hmm. now now we can move forward and see what's going to happen on this exciting episode. So <laughs> um, so just going back to some couple things you already said. Um, so being a pastor, and then realizing that maybe the religious text and stuff aren't quite explaining everything, which is a question I've heard quite often from people. It's like, it's almost like it's one against the other, but you can't have both. So, um, 
me, I've always kind of in the back of my mind considered the fact that I look at the Bible and then I look at the books that were left out of the Bible and that tells me, okay, someone was governing this process of putting this Bible together and deciding what's legitimate and what isn't. So mm-hmm. the the whole realm of, I guess, politics is the word you would use, church politics coming in here, you know, what's going to best serve our purposes to keeping people in line and what isn't and, and all that. So for the for the people that are religious i was just baptized a few years back Mm. um how do we reconcile what bob monroe went through and i've also been reading michael newton's books on uh, life between lives Mm -hmm. and how do we reconcile that with the story of jesus Mm -hmm. um and and like that because Michael Newton describes it as God being just unconditional love, just a, a feeling of love, which is something we've always defined God as anyways. We just happen to have to put an old man figure to him, I guess, to make him appear real. But um, the question's always been, how do we reconcile Jesus with all of this? You know, right. was he just a prophet? Was he actually uh, some site? you know, some, someone from the spiritual world or what's your opinion of that? Well, that actually, that very question is uh, um, sort of the center of my first book uh, called uh, Spiritual Hitchhiker's Guide to the Universe. Um, And because I was wrestling with that, that very issue back then, we have to realize that underneath, I think virtually every religious tradition is the spiritual experience somebody, either a person or a group of people, have um, spilled over from the physical world and experienced something in dimensions beyond the physical world. And, um, you know, these are, these are in the Bible. You know, you talk about Ezekiel, like seeing a wheel within a wheel and, and all these uh, bizarre things. Um, there, um, you talk about Joseph in his coat of many colors, which many think is the human aura. Um, and you could go on and on and on and look at these experiences and say, okay, that's really where it all begins. And it isn't just within the Judeo-Christian tradition, it's every religion. Somebody has had an experience beyond the ordinary. Now, the problem is, is that when somebody has an experience like that, it's very difficult for them to come back into a society that has not experienced that. Yeah. And begin to translate that experience in a way that others can grapple on to it. So um, language can't do it because these experiences transcend language. And the only thing that can do it is the direct experience itself. So uh, that's a, uh, the classic dilemma that somebody who's had these kinds of uh, mystical experiences has to face. Now, when they come back and talk about it, people hear the words, but they don't have the experience. And the yeah, words you've got is, no reference point, yeah. That's right. And, and the words do not have the power to induce the experience. And so... Now the followers go, oh, wow, there's something here. 
but they can't really touch what, what was the foundational experience. So now you have followers who then take what they've heard, they start to write books about it, they start to create a morality around it, they start to create dogma because that's all they have, never realizing that they've lost the experience. Now, and then that's very easy for you know the political establishment to take hold of that and start wearing that as a mantle of you know God's grace or whatever, and the whole thing gets pretty perverted from there on in. But I I, I do want to say though that I think in many ways we ha we have missed something really really important here, and, and that is that with even within the uh, many of the religious traditions there actually was and has been a strong mystical undercurrent that has been kept in place through the through the years but kind of kept behind closed doors and very often this was the temple traditions um, there's a, a marvelous book now what is the name of it? the the immortality key is what is, is the name of it and in that um, the author shows that within the temple traditions there was a, um, a strong history of and tradition of using hallucinogenics to help people to actually have that experience that I'm talking about. And so uh, there were secret recipes for both beer and wine that were nothing like the beer and wine that we have today, but they were actually uh, brewed in order to produce these, these hallucinogenic experiences. And so they and they were closely guarded within the temple, and the temples in those days were run by women, not men. And uh, these were also augmented by a whole series of other ceremonies and um, even temple prostitution to help stimulate the Kundalini effect. And these temples were so revered and so essential to the culture that in, in the Greek world, m many of the... Um, most influential people went through them and they were of the opinion that society would not be possible without the temples and what was going on there. So um, just to throw a little uh, wrench into the works here, if that is in fact true, and I think it is, he, uh, the author does an amazing job of, of tracing the history of this hallucinogenic, uh, these hallucinogenic beers and wines. And... Uh, he then uh, even hints that perhaps that is what Jesus was doing at the wedding of Cana when he was turning the water into wine. So that turns the whole tradition on its head. If you begin to look at it through that lens, now we really are getting back to the actual experience of transcendence beyond the physical world. So I think that, that that's really that's the key to it all right there. And if you if you can begin to grapple with that, then that changes the way you look at things. The the problem that we have right now is we've lost those infrastructures of transcendence, those temples that uh, can provide the way for people. But I think maybe we're uh, hopefully beginning to find ways to start to renew those for a next generation. Yeah, from what I've been seeing, there seems to be some sort of spiritual awakening going on around the world. Just more people are are beginning to look into these things, I guess. Uh, it's, uh, I think Michael Newton calls it the uh, the amnesia that 
when we when we re when we incarnate from the spirit world back into a, a human body, we're given this amnesia, and so we don't remember everything that happened in the spirit world. But it's almost like now the powers that be are starting to allow that to lift a little bit, mm -hmm. and everyone's starting to to get a little bit more uh, insight into their their spiritual side and what they're actually here on Earth for and mm -hmm. to accomplish and all that. So, yeah, um, hopefully that's true. So you said uh, at the end there, you said that the Monroe techniques didn't work for you anymore. So do, do you recommend hemisync and things like that to binaural oh, absolutely. beats? Absolutely, yeah. Um, if you're at all interested in this, I think it's one of the best ways to begin to um, open up uh, your range of perception uh, so that you can begin to interact with that which lies beyond the physical world. You know, we're, we're trained from the time that we are kids in the scientific method that only recognizes material reality as the only reality. But when you can start to actually see for yourself, not from somebody else's stories, but see from your own experience, it really does help you to realize that there is far more to this life than, uh, than we've been told. And I think the Monroe Institute does a great job of, of uh, providing that entree for people. It certainly did for me. And just because it stopped working for me was, was simply a function of the fact that, of my administrative uh, role at the Institute at that point. Yeah, you got too much stress and everything else going on yeah. to actually yeah. relax enough to use it probably. Right. Um, I, I try them from time to time because uh, I tell everyone I'm like about as psychic as a rock. Um, so I, I don't think I have much of an imagination either, apparently, because I'll, I'll sit there and, uh, and, and Bob will come on, you know, and say, imagine yourself on a beach and imagine this and imagine light around you. And I'm sitting there and it's just all complete blackness. And I'm like, I can't imagine anything. So it's like, <laughs> okay, maybe, maybe the guided meditation isn't quite right for me, but, uh, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, but it was, I don't know. I'm just starting to get down this spiritual path. For for a right. long time, this radio show was ghost hunting and hauntings mm -hmm. and the normal paranormal stuff, you know. Sure. And and somewhere along the line, I just started thinking, I really don't care why someone is haunting a house and hanging around. I want to know about the people who successfully crossed over to the other side, mm -hmm. and what it's like over there. What what mm -hmm. what can I expect after this life? And that led me to a book by Sarah Estep uh, called Voices of Eternity, where, where she just basically sat in her office, like every, I guess every morning, every afternoon, she'd just turn on a reel-to-reel -reel tape recorder for 10 minutes and ask questions to nothing. And it took her a while, but after, I think it was about six months, she started getting responses. And then that opened up a whole dialogue with a group called Timestream, which gave her all these messages of what's going on on the other side on a daily basis um and uh, enough so she wrote this whole book about it and i mean she was in her i don't know 50s or 60s when she started doing this so it's just a really interesting book that that really got me interested okay if if all these this time stream group is on the other side trying to make contact back here then there's a lot more going on there than I thought, so I really need to dig into this. And that just led down this path where I took a break for about 10 years and just getting back into it now. 
and um, I'm stumbling on channelers, finding out that there's all kinds of other groups out there channeling through people, trying to pass messages on, and and now I've stumbled on Michael Newton, and uh, because I'm a psychic as a rock, I'm not getting too far with uh, meditation, so tomorrow I'm going to take a past life regression session, Cool. and uh, that'll be interesting, I think, and then from there probably to a, a, a life between lives session after that, so... Um, yeah, for those people like me that that really, I mean, I just interviewed a psychic who said everyone is psychic, and it seems like every psychic says that. But um, <laughs> with the spiritual experiences that you have had, do you feel that you have some psychic abilities or, or intuitions or anything? Well, uh, so you used a very interesting word there when you uh, said intuitions. And I think that's a very helpful way of looking at it, because uh, I think I think in many ways we tend to um, fantasize about what psychic experience might be, and we tend to make it larger maybe than it needs to be. But if we look at more mundane things like intuition, or inspiration, or creativity, and we ask the question, well, where does that come from? Well. It, you talk to any anybody who's in the creative profession and they will tell you it just comes to me it doesn't it isn't something that they generate themselves it's something that seems to come from some other realm mm -hmm. and so i think most people will will have intuitions from time to time gut feelings uh answers to questions that just seem to appear out of midair um, knowings, uh, well, even take dreaming, for instance. Dreaming is a really remarkable thing, and most people do it. And if you really begin to go down that road and, and look at dreaming, it's, it's fascinating. But here again, where do they come from? Yeah. All right, so... And sometimes they're the weirdest combination of people that don't even know each other. All of a sudden, they're all in this this one setting. So, so, so if, if you, you begin, begin to kind of lower the bar a little bit and, and to look at the really remarkable capacities that we have as, as human beings that we happen to want us on a daily, weekly, monthly basis, you can begin to see that, yeah, we do have these extraordinary capacities, but we've just been told not to pay attention to them and not to honor them and not to see them as valuable by our culture, when in fact they are extremely valuable. So when you say you're not psychic, have you ever had an intuition? That's that's funny because last night I just had one. I was I was at a concert, uh, and the songs were okay, but nothing noteworthy. You know, it was going along just kind of average, and just all of a sudden something told me pull out your phone and record the next song. So I got the go. phone out and I got it all ready. And sure enough, the next song was like their biggest hit, you know? So I, something <laughs> I would want to record as a memory. And, and sure enough, and that started it. I mean, I wound up recording most of the whole rest of the concert. But up to that point, it was sat in my pocket and 
I was just enjoying the music, but I wasn't even thinking about recording it. And then all of a sudden, it's like, pull it out, because you're going to want to do the next one. And that was the, that really struck me, even at the time. I said, that was a really weird intuition. Like, somebody just said, hey, you're going to want this. So, so, yeah, so are, you, are you psychic? Are you psychic? Uh, apparently, I, I, good question. I, I don't know if it's, I don't even know how to explain it. I mean, right. So, is it is it from my spirit guide or uh, it's like what I said I couldn't I can't really meditate I'm sitting there in the darkness a couple of weeks ago just dark 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 but then right out of the blue all of a sudden I just saw in block letters the word Jack because I was sitting there wanting to know what is who is my spirit guide what's his name I want to meet him and I got nothing 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 all of a sudden Jack and then nothing after that and I've got nothing since but it's a it's a little nugget of something to build on, I think. So absolutely, absolutely. So, so you know, I, I think that again, so often we're victimized by our by our culture that wants to outlaw all this stuff, and so um, we just don't see these little things, these little indications that, you know, maybe we're we have m much better capacities than what we think. So, if I may, uh, just make one suggestion to you change the story that you're telling yourself about not being psychic that that was something i was just about to say to another the last interview i did she uh, she told me a lot of it has to do with your own vibration and if you have negative emotions and negative thoughts and i can't be that and i can't do that your vibration is so low you're right you're not going to be able to do that but if you increase your vibration, but you know meditation or just better thoughts of, of things, more love, more happiness, more appreciation, more gratitude, it starts to raise everything up, and then maybe you'll find that that you have more of those gifts than you think. So, what's your thoughts on that? Well, that's kind of a I think a segue into the work that I've been doing since I left the Monroe Institute in 2012, and and having to find a new way that could work for me since the Monroe uh, method was no longer able to do that for me. Um, and in some ways, actually this was still when I was at the Monroe Institute, um, I, we, my wife and I had a home in Florida that uh, I went back to just for a vacation and one day I was walking along the beach and really struggling with this central question that was haunting me. And um, it was around this issue of how difficult people can be to work with. You know, um, oh, yeah. it, didn't, it doesn't matter. Time and time again, you know, I've, I've been sort of in leadership positions and it doesn't matter what organization or how good the people are or how great the mission is. It always seemed like, inevitably, people would start jockeying for position and and creating their turf, and you know you have these turf wars, and and even people that I loved, you know, just couldn't seem to get along sometimes. And I couldn't. I said, I'm walking along the beach, and I'm thinking, how? Why is this? Why can't people get along? Um, and just get on with the mission and, and, and do the work and enjoy each other's company. And, you know, honestly, if I, if, I, if I am being really honest, you know, I had my uh, 
issues too. I had my hot buttons and biases, and so, you know, it wasn't like I was immune from this at all. And so as I'm walking along the beach, I'm just kind of throwing this question out to the universe, and of course, who's listening? Nobody's going to listen. Why is it that people can't get along, and, you know, is there some way around this? And, and no sooner did that question leave my mind, and these words came barreling back to me. He said, go to your heart. I'm like, nah, you know, go to your heart. That's kind of generic. <laughs> yeah, but what, But I, I've, I've had a few occasions in my life where that, you know, just those short, pithy words have come back to me. And it sort of, I knew by that time that it, it was a signal that something is changing pretty dramatically. And... There's a context for that phrase that was very meaningful to me at that time. Um, my oldest son uh, had recently gotten married, and uh, I, because I was a former pastor, they asked me to do the ceremony. And in the ceremony, I found myself being absolutely overwhelmed with emotion primarily because three years before the wedding, my, this same son of mine was um, wasting away to nothing. Uh, he couldn't keep any food down at all, and he was kept throwing up over and over and over again to the point where he, as a grown man, was closing in on about 120 pounds. And it was, it was just devastating because uh, my wife and I would trade off and go out to help him in Las Vegas, and his girlfriend at that time, who was then to be his wife three years later, was helping to care for him. And we took him to all kinds of doctors, and um, there was just nothing anybody could do for him. We even took him to a hospital in, in Los Angeles, and they eventually essentially kicked him out because they couldn't find anything, what was wrong with him. And so... Uh, on when they kicked him out of the hospital, my wife and my middle son were bringing him home. It was just the darkest, blackest day because it was like almost like we were bringing him home to his death. But a miracle happened on that trip home. He asked, as they were driving along, they stopped to get some food, and he asked to take a few bites, and he kept it down. And as time f unfolded over the months to come, he gradually gained more and more weight, and he came back to health. And, and now here he was three years later, and I'm standing in front of him and his wife-to-be. And uh, not only me, but the whole congregation is just in tears. Uh, and <laughs> my middle son, who was the best man, was crying, and he went over, he broke ranks and went down and grabbed one tissue from my wife, who was in the front pew, he came back and he was dabbing his eye and I grabbed that tissue from him and I'm grabbing my, dabbing my eyes and, and the, my son, the groom, grabbed it from me and he's dabbing his um, bride's eyes and then that tissue made its way all the way down the bridesmaids. <laughs> and it was just the most amazing experience because, you know, like, sure we were celebrating the wedding but it was almost like we were celebrating a resurrection too. Mm-hmm. Yeah, And I noticed at that point that my heart 
was almost like it was almost like it was being ripped apart trying to get big enough to hold this experience and so when i heard year i don't know how much longer after that it was but when i heard those words about go to your heart i connected with that experience of my heart trying to get big enough to hold it and i began to think you know maybe there's something really powerful here and that's in fact what i have found in the in the intervening years that this working with the heart is far more than sentiment it it is i think in many ways an avenue for us to begin to um move beyond to embrace transcendence both uh beyond the physical world but also to engage the physical world in a new way mhm that i think is appropriate for our time so can you uh can you lead us through what it is you are doing right now what you are offering people that um, we, well, we can use uh, to our advantage <laughs> well i've got a book that's going to be coming out here hopefully not before too long that where i talk about all this but i also do have a course with um through glidewing um and the course is called secrets of time money dreaming and enlightenment And so uh within that course I look at those four topics time money dreaming and enlightenment through this context of the heart. And so what happens with each of those is that they get transformed in pretty dramatic ways because the context for looking at them has has changed quite a bit. Um one of the things for instance that I found was as i began to enter into the heart on a nightly and morning basis it it set up this bridge place between waking consciousness and sleep consciousness and so it's a it's a place that uh we have ignored for the most part but i think it's a, f- a third form of consciousness between waking and, and sleeping and that when we create this space through the heart then then we have a transition point where we can begin to integrate uh waking world with the uh non-waking world in very very productive and very exciting ways and so i began to see that the intentional creation of this space through the heart then opened up my dream world in amazing ways and my dream world then began to relate to my waking world in um very profound uh um ways that uh, were quite um, quite amazing to me. Um remember that I I I was just stumbling through this. It wasn't like anybody was instructing me. I was just kind of bumping my way around, uh, along trying to find find some new way to engage these worlds. And it really has been far more profound than than I could have ever expected. um it is glidewings no glidewing g l i d e w i n g i think it's dot program dot com and i apologize that i don't have that well i right in front of me right i can i'm going to try to look it up right here time. Well, okay so when you go to your page on glidewing a video automatically plays time money dreaming and enlightenment 
There's a split with time and money on one hand and dreaming enlightenment on the other hand. Time and money, of course, has to do with dealing with the needs of the body, food, shelter, clothing, sex, love. On the other hand, we have this other category that's more elusive, more mysterious. People seem to land on either side of that spectrum. How is it that we as human beings lose sight of the big mission? Most of my life, I felt this enormous split, this chasm, because even though I was interested in this, I still had to maintain the body. And it wasn't until I began that journey into the heart, that split began to close up for the first time in my life. And suddenly, the world began to make sense. That's the journey we're going to take. Welcome. Okay, so it looks like glidewing.com slash HS slash the, the, I don't know why I always say the, the underscore conscious underscore heart dot HTML is what I'm seeing here. Okay. Is your, is your main page. All right, so it's a six-week course. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of things here. I'm not going to just read off all of them, but... Uh, from fear and greed to communion within the world, becoming a vehicle for the expression of the universe. So, yeah, this sounds like it's right up my alley. Um, <laughs> we cover a lot of stuff in six weeks. It's amazing. And originally, Bob wanted me to do a three-week course, and I said, "There's just no way I can begin to even touch into this stuff in three weeks." Yeah, yeah, I know some of these, yeah, this is, you almost need a lifetime to really interpret all of this stuff. It's like, I'm getting started 60 years too late, um, but... Uh, You're never too late. The, the beauty is knowing that I've got a few more lifetimes to, to experience all this. I don't have to do it all in one, so... That's right, that's right. Um, now I had another question, and it went right back out of my head again. Uh, so the book, is that covering basically the same as the course, or are you expanding yes. on stuff, or... Yes, it is. It is, and um, you know, I've, I've, I've just, I've got a few more things to do on it, and then there's the whole process of getting it uh, printed and um, available. So I'm hoping in the next maybe few months, I'll, it'll be out there. Um, but it's been, an, it's been a joy to write, and, it's, and it has been a joy to do that course too. And I really appreciated uh, Bob Felix for giving me the invitation to do that. Yeah, it was great. I don't even know how I wound up on his page. I mean, I've been since I restarted this podcast, I've been looking at past episodes and people mm-hmm. I've I've interviewed, and and you were definitely on my list of people I wanted to connect with again. But I couldn't f- quite figure out where to find you, and then somehow I stumbled down to uh, to Glidewing, and there you were. So I just had to email him to see if I could get to you. So, uh, <laughs> well, thank you for working so hard to do that. Definitely. Well, it was such a great. Uh, great time the last time you were on and i uh, again encourage people to go back and listen to episode 11 uh which was a uh, i believe it's almost two hours at that point because we were oh, really? it was a live show on the air so uh in amongst all the commercials and uh, all the other breaks but it was at least a at least 90 minute interview there um let's see here where do we go from here um so did you when did you leave Monroe? Exactly. Uh, 2012. Okay, so mm-hmm. it wasn't too long after I spoke to you the last mm-hmm. time then. Um, and when did you start this course that you're doing now? 
I, I'm going to guess uh, maybe three or four years now. Uh, so, so really so much of this material emerged after I left them. It started while I was still at the Monroe Institute and has continued. And it, honestly, it's continued even after this, this particular course that I have here uh, has been up and published. Uh, I'm still exploring this uh, world through the heart. Uh, I thought I would have run out of stuff a long time ago, but it's as vibrant now as the as it ever was. And um, you know, I think one of the really fascinating aspects for me has been as as this third uh, state of awareness has emerged for almost like a, a maybe a staging place or a uh, or if you can imagine a cafe this third state of awareness just is a place where um, I can go back into dreams with my waking consciousness and explore them almost like it's a lucid dream in, in many ways. Mm-hmm. It, it isn't technically a, a lucid dream at all, but it has some of this, the, the same aspects to it. And one, one of the, the key aspects, aspects of working, working with, with the heart, heart as, as opposed to working with the, the brain, uh, is that the heart is, as, as we, we all know, is, is well known for its ability and, and aptitude for relationships. But we tend often to think of relationships only in terms of my relationship to another person or a group of people. But when I use that term, I'm using it in a much broader sense because the heart is able to make relationships not just with other people, but other states of consciousness, other dimensions, other uh, people who emerge out of the dream world, out of the dream world, meditational space, on and on and on and on. And so... That's very different from our cultural perspective in the scientific mode that wants to reduce everything down to its own isolated element. Mm-hmm. And relationships kind of fall to the background. And so in our culture, we're very interested in individuality. We're very interested in the scientific method that wants to eliminate all variables in order to look objectively at something. But the heart is really uh, looks at the world in a very different way. And so it sees relationships as the basis for everything. So what I have begun to see is that as the dream, my dream world really began to expand as I created this third awareness, this in-between awareness, um, it wasn't so much about interpreting dreams anymore or even discovering the meaning of dreams. It was about entering into relationships with the dream figures who would emerge from the dream. So that it wasn't just they were there for the dream only, but they became people who continued their relationship with me in very almost like mentor kinds of, of uh, status. Just to give you an example, um, I had one dream where I was told to go to uh, uh, this like old Victorian home. So my wife and I in the dream went there and 
when we walked in, there was this demonstration or teaching going on. There were two instructors at the front of the room, just a smattering of a few other students at lab tables. And they were stirring this liquid in a coffin. And every once in a while this uh, skeleton would emerge and then it would drop back into the the coffin and the liquid. And, and you know, I knew this is really profound. You know, they're, t- they're dealing with life and death stuff here and, and that's really, but our mandate in the dream was to go to this place and steal some manuscripts. And the manuscripts are at the back of the room. And so my wife and I are rifling through these manuscripts, looking for what we're looking for, hoping that everybody's looking at the demonstration at the front of the room and not seeing us. But as we're doing that, one of the instructors came back and he says, would you like a bag for those? (laughs) <laughs> almost as if he's expecting us <laughs> to be stealing these documents, right? <laughs> said, no, 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 we got it, we got it. And so we find what we're looking for, and we run out into the courtyard, and there's this woman who greets us there. And, and as, as soon, soon as, as we, we see her, her both, both my, my wife, wife and, and I go, oh, I know you, as, as if, if we've known her for lifetimes. Mm-hmm. And she puts her hands on her hips, and she says, you say that every time we meet. And, <laughs> and so so this this was this dream was one of the, what I call a big dream because it carried such an emotional impact and power beyond anything that I'd ever experienced before in a dream. And when I woke up I was still under its spell. And by this time I'd learned to, you know, this technique of going into the heart and I could go back into the dream. And uh, I began to see that this woman has been with me for lifetimes. It's been an extremely important aspect of, of my life. And, um, and I, could, I could bring her into any dream, and she could talk about the dream to me and explain its significance for me. And it was just like, bing, 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 bing. It was no... Him and her hon, it was just straight, straight up, straight information. And, and uh, she has continued to, that, to this day to function in that same capacity for me. So that's an example of what I mean by a long-term relationship that comes out of the dream and the figures that emerge out of the dream. So it's a very different way of, of engaging the dream world when you're looking at uh, those types of relationships versus, you know, oh, this dream means that, this symbol means that. That's, that's not what I'm talking about at all. This is much more dynamic, much more vibrant, and, uh, and interesting and compelling, honestly. So, I mean, my first thought is that she was your spirit guide and you're, you're tapping into this, the spirit world and this in-between area is what's coming into my mind. Um, I know with me, when I dream, I can't remember a dream five minutes after I've finished it. So it's like, wouldn't do me any good to go back because I don't have anything to remember. So I guess that's one technique. Uh, my my ex-wife, she can remember like all her dreams forever, it seems like. Mm-hmm. And uh, and I don't know why I'm just that one of those that can't. So I guess maybe that's one thing I need to work on first is how to remember what I dreamt for five minutes long enough to go back to reinterpret it. So. 
Well, you actually can. Uh, there, are, there are some, I think, pretty easy and significant techniques for doing that. Um, and again, you know, kind of maybe first think about your your language around that and and saying start telling yourself a different story that says something like you know I can remember my dreams and let your let your psyche and your unconscious begin to respond to that and so one of the ways you can do that is to um, if you have an iPhone just keep it by your bed and as soon as you wake up as soon as you wake up Write down whatever you can in the in the notes in your iPhone. It might be just one word. It might be a feeling. It might, but if you if you do that, you're sending a message to your unconscious that hey, I'm interested. And then the the unconscious responds to that. So so often we think it's all up to us. It's not all up to us by any stretch of the imagination. We have an enormous amount of help that's available if we will signal that we're interested in taking that help. And so one of the ways we can do that is to just uh, set an intention before you go to bed that if I have a dream tonight, my God, I'm going to wake up and I'm going to write that sucker down uh, and, uh, and, and set that as an intention. And particularly if you can engage the heart in that too, uh, then you've got another uh, support system in helping you do that. Honestly, Al, I, I began to see my dreams as more precious than gold. Mm-hmm. That if I, that you know, if I, I felt like if I didn't do that, I didn't write them down, that I was missing something of great significance. And it's it's been true because uh, not only this woman, but uh, others have emerged that have been enormously helpful in guiding me through the next step of this process. That certainly I did not invent. But I was just a recipient of, and uh, so I've, it's been a demonstration to me time and time again that that this is this is really crucial, not just for me, but I think for uh, humanity as it moves to its next stage of of consciousness. That yeah. So I I guess I guess it comes back to almost where I started is I just have to change my my attitude, my perception of. Uh, more of a positive one than a negative one it's like not 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 accepting the fact that up until this point i can never remember any of my dreams but from this point on i am going to start remembering my dreams yes yes and and just be gentle with yourself on that too don't don't look at what you've done to this point as a negative because it's it's made you who you are it's just an uh, hold, just hold up the possibility of a new stage opening up for you honoring what has happened before and um, because you're you're pretty great the way you are you know and it's just a matter of taking that next step yeah i think uh, that's something i'm learning too is the past is just that it's in the past right. so you're you're starting right now today moving forward and just worry about one day at a time you know how am i going to be today what am i going to do today and right. and then generally it you know it'll just start growing from there so um so we're almost to the uh end of our time here okay so um i don't want to tie you up too long i've I've had you for almost an hour so um i guess 
I don't even know where to start here. You've got so many things that going on in your bio between your first book, your next book, and your course, and uh, everything else in between. So where uh, where do you want to leave us? What uh, what parting words would you enlighten us with uh, <laughs> to, to, to move on? Well, you've you've had you've had quite the ride here so far. Uh, I, I, Once again, I, I'm going to tell people to go back and listen to episode 11 and listen to that, and then come listen to this. So, uh, thank you. You have, thank you. You have been from yeah from the hitchhiking across the America and almost dying to where you are now. You've had quite a journey. So, what have, what have, what has Paul learned through all this? Boy, uh, that's that's uh, that's a really. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but it's a fair but it's a fair one you know so you you're putting me on the spot here um i no no that's okay it's okay it, it, that's what i'm here for you know i love tough tough questions like that um i th- i think that for me is is that human beings have these capacities to begin to interact with that which lies beyond the merely material world, and and we we've gone so far down the material path that there's I think there's a longing that is uh, starting to emerge because in the end I think we are creatures who seek balance and we're out of balance right now, and have been for a long time, and so. The key to the future is not more technology. It's not more manipulation of the material world. The key to the the future, as far as I'm concerned, is surrounding this question of human consciousness. And what does that mean? What are our capacities? What uh, is there a way that we can begin to interact with and work with um, that which lies beyond the material world? Uh, Just and let let me just. Hope this is not getting too long here. Nope. Okay. In when I was at the Monroe Institute, I think it was probably my first program there. I ended up in this what I call the City of Light, and and what I mean by that is that the buildings themselves were luminescent. They were made of stone that seemed to glow from within, and it was um, breathtakingly beautiful. And it was populated by people of light. And I found myself in this amphitheater. And um, these people of light are sitting in the seats, sort of 180 degrees around me. And um, I'm at the podium, and I'm thinking, what in the world am I doing here? And I sort of asked that question, and the guy to my left, who is sort of like the MC, I guess, and he says to me, what you're doing is very important to us. I thought, how could what I'm doing be important to you? I'm just stumbling around. I don't know what I'm doing. I just, I don't even know what I'm doing here. <laughs> and um, that statement has stayed with me ever since um, because it, it's an indication to me that What's happening in the material world is not random. It's not insignificant. It has great significance, not just to us, 
but also to those on the other side. So much so that they, they are interested in working with us to birth humanity into this next stage, whatever that's going to look like. And so when I look at it from that perspective, and again, now we're in, still back in the range of the heart and, and its forte for relationships, now we're looking at a relationship between the physical world and that which lies beyond it, the conscious world and the unconscious, the mundane and the spiritual, so that it's no longer one or the other, but it's both and. They're working together in uh, a, a really profound relationship. And I, I think that if, if we can begin to embrace that individually, but also collectively, that there's a, a, a new future that is waiting to emerge uh, even now, and that we can begin to touch into even in this, this mundane existence. And that gives, uh, gives me great joy and, and places us, in, I think, in a new context of wonder uh, that's, mm-hmm. that is quite transcendent. And I think the heart is, is a, has, has a role to play in that. This is somewhat of a message I've been, I've been hearing from multiple directions, is that there's a new age coming, uh, a new spiritual awakening, and that uh, lots of people like you are helping to bring this awareness uh, to people, and the more people that become aware, the the higher the overall vibration becomes, which makes it again easier for more people to realize abilities and and things like that, and and mm-hmm. just it just keeps 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 raising the water level basically, and then the spiritual level. So um, I just want to thank you for what you're doing in this in this. Uh, I don't want to say fight, but in this mission, that uh, uh, it's it's great to uh, to see you're you're still at it. Maybe coming from a little different angle than you were in the past, but mm-hmm. you know, I mean you've you've come from it spiritual. You've come from it as a pastor. You've come from it as someone who's had out of body experiences, and you you're coming at it now through the heart. So you're just uh, attacking this thing from all different directions. So I appreciate what you're doing. Well, it's not a, it's not really much of a choice, you know. It just seems to be the way I've been put together. But can I also say, Al, thank you for what you're doing too, because your uh, interest in this area and your uh, desire to explore it is every bit as important as anything that I'm doing or anybody else is. So uh, I, you know, I just want to thank you for for the, the journey you're on, but also your willingness to to publish it and help other mm-hmm. people come along that's a very very important function that you're doing so kudos to you and hats off to you my friend well i've, I've always been a little different anyway so <laughs> um people come to expect that they don't know what they're going to get out of me it's true but yeah. um anyway uh, i'm hoping we can do this again uh, i'm Be hoping we can stay in touch so we're another 13 years doesn't go by before we talk again do you uh speak publicly anywhere or uh, you know <laughs> I, I haven't for a long time. I think I think part of my journey was to sort of pull back from the the public, you know, I, as both as a pastor and as as the executive director of the Monroe Institute. My life was pretty public, and and I did a lot of speaking. 
But I think I needed to pull back into this more a quieter existence, a more hermetic, to begin to explore this path. I suspect, and I'm, I'm kind of hoping that the opportunities will begin to emerge for me to do something of that. I think probably I'm getting ready to the place where that that um, that might be a possibility for sure. But we'll see. You know, it's not in my hands. Yeah, and I and. Uh... I would highly recommend just maybe doing a podcast of your own, just sitting there where you're sitting right now. And if you get a thought, just sit down and record yourself, you know, five or 10 minutes and just stick it out there, stick it on YouTube on Twitter, Facebook, wherever, and just uh, let your thoughts spill out on a semi-regular basis. And it with the technology now, it's so easy to do. Um, for those who are watching and listening, uh, once again, go back to episode 11. That's the place to uh, to pick up or this whole story where it started. And then uh, we'll go from there. So uh, until next time, I'll, uh, I'll see you back here. Bye.